Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In the last episode of our podcast, we started into a brand new series of sermons called I Believe, where we're talking about what we as Christians believe. And to help us talk about this, we're turning to a tool that Christians have used for almost 1,600 years to help summarize the essential beliefs of our faith. We're using something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed begins with the statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So we spent our time together in our last episode talking about what that means for our beliefs. Well, today we're moving on to the next series of statements, and they are all about Jesus. And let's just be honest here. Even though we as Christians can disagree on so many different things, we all get together around Jesus. Jesus truly is the essential belief of our faith. So let's get right into this episode's sermon and see what it means for us to believe in Jesus Christ. So over the years, I've had the chance to attend a number of different church conferences and conventions. And whenever I meet another minister at one of these events, it never takes long before we look at each other and we say, tell me about your church. Now, usually when you ask a minister to tell you about their church, what they're going to do is they're going to tell you how many people attend their worship services. But every once in a while, you'll meet someone who has a completely unique answer to that question. That's what happened to me a couple of years ago when I was attending a conference called Exponential in Chicago, Illinois. And I met another minister there as we sat down beside each other in the sanctuary, getting ready for an evening worship service to begin. And we struck up a little bit of a conversation, and I asked her to tell me about her church. And she looked at me and she told me that, and described her church as a theological rainbow. She said it was made up of liberals and conservatives. It was made up of Republicans and Democrats. It was made up of charismatics and social justice advocates. She went on to say that they all attended the same Sunday school classes and worked side by side on Habitat for Humanity projects. And she said that they all genuinely loved and cared for each other. But it's the last thing that she said about her church that I still remember two years later, when she said, we differ on so many things, but we all get together around Jesus. We all get together around Jesus. Now, I think that's a pretty good description of the church. Amen? We all get together around Jesus. But I think that's more than just a good description of the church. It's also a pretty good summary of one of the essential beliefs of our faith. And that's what we're talking about at Melbourne Heights right now. We're talking about the essential beliefs of our faith. Those beliefs that make us as Christians, Christians. And to help us as we're thinking and talking about the essential beliefs of our faith, we're using a tool, something that's been used for almost 1,600 years by Christians to help us summarize our faith. And the tool we're using is called a creed, and a creed is just a statement of beliefs. And the specific creed that we're looking at and using during the sermon series is called the Apostles' Creed. Now, we don't call this the Apostles' Creed because it was written by the apostles, Jesus' first followers that he sent out into the world to share the good news about him, because it wasn't written by them. Instead, we call this the Apostles' Creed because this summary of beliefs has long been seen as an accurate summary of what the apostles taught us about Jesus. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look at what the Apostles' Creed actually says. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, I said this last Sunday, but it's worth repeating again today. Even though the Apostles' Creed has long been seen as an accurate summary of everything the Apostles had to teach us about Jesus, there is no creed, there is no statement of beliefs that can ever fully capture what we as Christians believe. And that's because the essence of our faith as followers of Jesus is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and not in a system of ideas. But even though the Apostles' Creed cannot completely capture everything that we as followers of Jesus believe, it still can be a useful tool for us as we try to understand the essentials of our faith. So last week, we started exploring the first statement in the Apostles' Creed, the statement that says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And we talked about what it means for us to believe in God. Well, this week we're moving on to the next statement that we find in the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to be talking about the part about Jesus. Because, like my colleague in ministry put it, we all get together around Jesus. And that's why the Apostles' Creed says so much about Jesus. Now, if you take a step back and you look at the Apostles' Creed from a 30,000-foot view, what you're going to realize is that it's made up of 107 words. Out of these 107 words, nine of them are about God the Father. Three of them are about the Holy Spirit. Eight of them are about the church. Twelve of them are about some sort of doctrinal or theological issue. That leaves 65 of them that are about Jesus. So over 60% of the Apostles' Creed is focused in on what we as Christians believe about Jesus. Now, we're already a couple of minutes into the sermon, so I don't exactly have time to talk about everything that we find in the Apostles' Creed that it says about Jesus. So what I want to do today instead is to just focus on a few words that the Apostles' Creed uses when it talks about Jesus. And the words that I want to focus in on are the words, I believe in Jesus Christ. And I want to focus in on these words in particular because these words are one of the most basic confessions of our faith. So. As a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Why don't you say that with me? Okay, we'll say it together on three. Ready? One, two, three. I believe in Jesus Christ. Say it again. I believe in Jesus Christ. And one more time like you really believe it. I believe in Jesus Christ. But of course, this begs the question, who exactly is Jesus Christ? Now, from time to time, you'll run into some skeptics that will try to convince you that Jesus has more in common with the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy than he does with you and with me. But the truth is that Jesus is a real person who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Bart Ehrman, who is a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina and a self-professed agnostic, has spent his entire career examining the evidence of the existence of Jesus. And even as an agnostic, Dr. Ehrman still summarizes his life's work by saying, Jesus did exist, 
whether we want to believe it or not. So there are a few basic things that we can all agree on when it comes to Jesus. So just about everyone can agree that Jesus was born somewhere before 4 BC to a woman named Mary. And just about everybody can agree that Jesus was born in the Roman province of Judea, which was ruled over by King Herod the Great at the time of Jesus' birth. And just about everybody can agree that not too long after Jesus was born, that his family relocated to the small town of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. From there, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus' life until he was about 30 years old. Because when he was about 30 years old, that's when Jesus' public ministry began in a place in an area called Galilee. And the Gospel of Matthew actually does a pretty good job of summarizing what Jesus' ministry was like in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, when it tells us this. It says, Jesus traveled among all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, announcing the good news of God's kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were troubled and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. This is the part of Jesus' identity that just about everybody can agree on. Just about everybody can agree that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And you can also find people who will tell you that Jesus is a prophet. And you can even find a few people that are willing to say that Jesus was a miracle worker. But as Christians, we believe that Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher, more than just a prophet, more than just a miracle worker. So who do we believe that Jesus is? Well, to help us answer that question, I think the easiest thing that we can do is to focus in on the name and the title that the Apostles' Creed uses when it describes Jesus. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to focus in on the name of Jesus we're going to focus in on the title of Christ, and we're going to see what those two words can teach us about who Jesus is. So let's start by talking about the name Jesus. Now, according to both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Mary and Joseph have separate angels come to them and tell them to give the name Jesus to the baby that Mary is carrying. So what this means is that Mary and Joseph, they didn't pick out the name Jesus as they were flipping through a book of baby names and just found one that they thought sounded good. And they didn't pick out Jesus' name based on someone in their family that they wanted to honor or celebrate the memory of. From what Matthew and Luke both tell us, Mary and Joseph didn't have any say in the name that was going to be given to Mary's baby. Instead, God is the one who chose the name Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew explains why God chose this name for his son in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when it says this, You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Now, usually when we talk about that in church, what we'll say is that Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. Or we'll say that Jesus died for our sins. And although forgiveness and mercy are an important part of what it means for Jesus to save us from our sins, that's not all that it means. Because when we say that Jesus came to, for, to save us from our sins, we're not just saying that Jesus forgives us of our sins. We're also saying that Jesus shows us a better way to live our lives that doesn't involve sinning. To help you understand exactly what I'm talking about, it's useful if you know what the word sin 
actually means. And the word that, the Greek word that we translate as sin is actually the word hamartia. And the word hamartia literally means to miss the mark. And when I say miss the mark, it should make you think about archery. Now, in archery, there is a mark, there is a target, there's a bullseye that everybody is aiming for when they shoot an arrow. But you, when you miss the mark, when you miss the bullseye, you hamartia, or you sin. And once again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to tell us what the mark is, what the bullseye is that we as Christians are aiming for as we follow him when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment. So in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, this is what Jesus tells us. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus is telling us in these couple of verses in the Gospel of Matthew is that we miss the mark or we sin whenever we do anything in word or in thought or in deed that is inconsistent with loving God and loving others. So when Jesus saves us from our sin, what Jesus is doing is he is forgiving us that we mess up, that we miss the mark that we're aiming for, and Jesus is also helping us to correct our aim, to help us dial in so that we're always aiming for that bullseye, that target, that mark of loving God and loving others. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus is more. Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. We believe that Jesus is our Savior. We believe that Jesus is our Savior. But that's not all that we believe about Jesus. We also believe that Jesus is the Christ. But in order for us to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, we need to spend a little bit of time talking about somebody else that was commonly thought of as the Christ. And the person that we're going to be talking about for the next couple of minutes is someone by the name of Octavian. And Octavian was the emperor, the ruler of Rome, during the golden age of the Roman Empire. And under Octavian's rule, inside of the Roman Empire, long-neglected temples and places of worship would be restored. Under Octavian's rule in the Roman Empire, you would see the, the Roman Senate would be restored to power, and Rome would once again become a republic. Under Octavian's rule, you would see inside of the Roman Empire that all of the self-righteousness and deceitfulness and divisiveness that was happening inside of the world would be replaced by calm and order and a renewed mission for Rome's purpose inside of the world. Under Octavian's rule, inside of the Roman world, they would once again celebrate important cultural festivals and religious rites. Under Octavian's rule, the Roman, inside of the Roman Empire, the armies would all be united as one, and they would become one of the best-standing trained armies in the history of the world. Under Octavian's rule, the Roman Empire would continue to expand its boundaries and its borders, reaching farther into Europe, into places like Spain and Germania, as well as into Africa and farther into Asia Minor. Under Octavian's rule, the people all across the Roman Empire would have access to food and have access to water. Under Octavian's rule, Rome would truly become a golden place to live. They would have everything from a fire brigade all the way down to a police force. They would be a great empire. 
And it was all due to Octavian. Octavian deserved all the credit for what was happening in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Senate would give him all of the honor, all of the glory, all of the credit for what he did when the Roman Senate would bestow on him the title of Augustus, which literally means illustrious one. So Octavian would become known as Caesar Augustus. And in the minds of the Roman world, Caesar Augustus was more than just a king. Caesar Augustus was more than just a ruler. Caesar Augustus was more than just the man who helped save the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus was a god. But Caesar Augustus isn't the god that we're here to worship today. But we needed to spend some time talking about who Caesar Augustus was so that we can understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And once again, this will make a little bit more sense as we look at the first time that anyone calls Jesus the Christ. And we find this story once again inside of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, where we'll start reading in verse 13, here's what Matthew writes. He says, Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, now I know this is a little bit strange, but we are going to pause right here for a couple of minutes. And in the few words that we just read, we hear that Jesus is in an area called Caesarea Philippi. So what do you know about Caesarea Philippi? Chances are that you don't know much about this place, because Caesarea Philippi is just like every other city that we run across when we're reading the Bible. They're just the names of ancient places that really don't mean a whole lot to us today. But what we need to remember is that the names of these places meant something when this gospel was being written. Sometimes it helps if you think of it along these lines. What images come to your mind when I mention a place like New York City? Now, even if you have never been to New York City, there are things that you know about New York. There are images that come to your mind. There are things that you think about. You may think about your favorite TV show that took place in New York City, whether it's Friends or Seinfeld or Law and Order or something else. Or you may think about one of the landmarks that you find in New York City, like the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or being in Times Square. Or you may think about one of the sports teams that plays games in New York, like the Yankees or the Knicks or the Giants or another one of the teams there. Right now, it doesn't really matter what images come to your mind when I say New York City. All that matters is that something comes to your mind. The name New York City means something to you. The same thing is true in biblical times. The names of these places mean something to the people who hear them. So when an author like Matthew mentions the name of a place like Caesarea Philippi, it meant something to the people that Matthew was writing this book to. And when it comes to Caesarea Philippi, there was one thing that just about everyone would have known about this place. And what they would have known about Caesarea Philippi is about 10 years before the story that we're reading this morning takes place, that there was a major temple that was built there. And this temple, it wasn't dedicated to our God. This temple wasn't a place where our God was worshipped. No, this temple was dedicated to Caesar Augustus, the most powerful ruler in Roman history. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus is in a place called Caesarea Philippi, this is what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus is in a place where Caesar is being worshipped. Jesus is in a place where people consider Caesar Augustus to be the Christ. And the word Christ literally means anointed one, or it's often thought of as being the one who has been set apart 
by God or the one who is chosen by God. That's how people felt about Caesar Augustus in Caesarea Philippi. So let's keep all that in mind as we turn back to Matthew chapter 16 again. And we'll start at the beginning in verse 13. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, Happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my Father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter, and I'll build my church on this rock. The gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read this particular story, in my mind it sounds like Peter just kind of blurts out what he says here without really thinking about what it means. But when Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, Peter makes the most basic confession of our faith. Peter says that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one who has been chosen by God. But that's not all that Peter says here. Because when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, you have to remember where he's saying that in. He's saying this in Caesarea Philippi, a place where people are literally coming to worship Caesar Augustus as the Christ, the chosen one, like a God himself. So when people show up in Caesarea Philippi, it's not like when we go and visit a place like Washington, D.C. You know, when we go to Washington, D.C., we may go and visit the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, but when we visit those places, we're not going to worship George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. We may be going there to think about and reflect on and honor a couple of men who were instrumental and influential in the history of our nation, but we're not showing up to worship them like they are God. But when people went to Caesarea Philippi and they went to Caesar's temple there, they were worshiping him. And they were worshiping him because they thought Caesar was a God that was worthy of their worship. And we already talked about this, but Caesar did a lot of stuff that made people feel that way about him. He built roads that connected the entire Roman Empire. He waged wars that expanded the boundaries of the Roman world farther and farther. He created a standing army that helped keep the people and citizens of Rome safe. Caesar Augustus did everything that he could to lead Rome into its golden age and golden era. So Caesar Augustus was a great ruler. But not in Peter's mind. Not in Peter's mind. Because when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, when he is sitting in the shadow of Caesar's temple in Caesarea Philippi, what Peter is saying is that Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus is Lord of Lords. And if Jesus is King of Kings, and if Jesus is Lord of Lords, then Caesar is not. And if Jesus is King of Kings, and Jesus is Lord of Lords, then no one and nothing else can be. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus is our Savior, and we also believe that Jesus is our one and only King. We believe that Jesus is our one and only King. And here's the cool part. 
We believe that Jesus is our one and only king. And our king came down to this earth for us. Our king walked this earth like one of us. Our king was born to ordinary parents and grew up in a place where they were struggling to make ends meet, just like a lot of us did. Our king experienced all of the joy and all of the sorrow, all of the hope and all of the despair, all of the love and all of the hate, all of the peace and all of the chaos, all of the pain and all of the suffering that goes along with being one of us. So our king didn't just walk a mile in our shoes. Our king walked 33 years in our shoes. But that's not all that Jesus did. Because when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus shows us how much we all matter to God. And Jesus shows us what God's will is for our lives and for the world that we live in. Now, I told you last week when we started into the sermon series that we weren't just talking about what we as Christians believe. We're also talking about why these beliefs matter. And what we've been talking about today matters because when Jesus came into this world as our Savior and as our King, Jesus shows us how much we each matter to God. When Jesus enters into this world, God shows us how much he loves every single one of us. This is why Karl Barth, who is one of the most important and influential theologians of the last hundred years, is able to summarize his life's work the way that he does. Now, to help you understand just how prolific Karl Barth is, he wrote a 14-volume set called Church Dogmatics. And in this 14-volume set, Karl Barth talks about what I'm trying to cover in six weeks during the sermon series. In Church Dogmatics, Karl Barth talks about what we as Christians believe. But even though he wrote 14 volumes talking about everything that we as Christians believe, when he was asked by a student if he could summarize everything that he had worked on, everything that he had to say in one sentence, Karl Barth didn't hesitate to say a few words that we are all familiar with. He summarized everything that he wrote by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the Jesus that we believe in. We believe in a Jesus who is our Savior, a Jesus who is our King, a Jesus who entered this world and lived just like us. And this matters to us because this Jesus is a Jesus who loves me and a Jesus who loves you. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, we are just overwhelmed by what we've heard today as we thought about who Jesus is. Because God, Jesus is more than just a great moral teacher to us. He's more than just a prophet, more than just a miracle worker. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our King. Jesus is your Son that came into this world to save us. God, we are overwhelmed by what it means that you sent your son into this world for us. It shows us how much you love us, that you were willing to become one of us, to experience everything that it means to be a human, so that nothing can separate us from you. So God, help us. Help us to remember who we are and what it means for Jesus to come for us. 
means that we are loved. We are loved greater and deeper than we can ever understand by you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that today's episode has helped you better understand who Jesus is. Now, in our next episode, we're going to continue to explore what we as Christians believe. And we're going to go from talking about the part of the Apostles' Creed that has the most words associated with it to the part of the Apostles' Creed that has the fewest words associated with it. So next week, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. So we hope that you'll come back and join us when our next episode drops next Tuesday morning. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And remember, you don't have to wait for Tuesday for our next sermon. You're always invited to come and worship with us online at mhbclouisville.com slash live. We would love to have you with us Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time. Well, until next time, hope that you guys have a great week. I'll be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.